Well, I don't know about you, but coming to church on the first Sunday of the new year, I typically would want to listen to a sermon that just kind of really gets me going. You know, a sermon that talks about resolutions, Bible reading plans, prayer, new beginnings, and change. But that's not what we have this morning. Instead, we find ourselves, according to the preaching schedule in Exodus, and the title of the sermon isn't A New Beginning with God or All Things New. It is River of Blood. It's a passage about the plagues of Egypt, as if we aren't already exhausted about hearing about plagues and pandemics. And it's a passage that presents the power and the judgment of God. So, Happy New Year. Yet perhaps in God's good providence, this is precisely the message we need to hear this morning. This passage is not a to-do list for the new year. Instead, it's a passage that takes us into a study of the nature and character of God. And perhaps this is the project we need to be basing our lives on in 2022. Knowing God is crucially important. And J.I. Packer once said, or once wrote... It would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him into London and put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him as one who knew nothing of English or England to fend for himself. So we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about the God, whose world it is, and who runs it. The world would become a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who don't know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. So let's not do either of those things. Let's neither waste our lives in this new year nor waste our souls as we approach the book of Exodus and study and learn and feel as we are confronted with the person of God here in chapter 7. Now, as we saw a couple weeks ago, chapter 7 is a turning point in Exodus. It marks the beginning of the ten plagues and the great confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. And this morning, we find ourselves at the first of the ten plagues. Now, some of you have asked me, and I think you've asked me with a little bit of trepidation, are you going to preach one sermon for every one of the ten plagues? And to your relief, I've responded to you. No, I will not. I might do one sermon for each of the Ten Commandments, but not one sermon for each of the Ten Plagues, because there is so much overlap in these plagues. But this morning, I want to provide a brief overview of the Ten Plagues, as well as introduce the first plague. And Lord willing, in February, when I'm back in the pulpit, I can finish the other nine plagues in the span of only four sermons. So today's outline is going to be fairly simple for you. First, we're going to talk about the significance of the plagues. 
And then we're going to move into the supremacy of God as we look to the first plague. Fairly simple. So first, the significance of the plagues. You might notice that the word plague actually doesn't appear anywhere in our Bibles, unless it's the editors of our Bibles. Uh, you may notice that um, this word doesn't appear, and rather the, the word is signs and wonders. Uh, chapter 7, verse 3 talks about it being multiplying his signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. But plague is actually not a bad label. Uh, plague is something that is a blow or a wound. And we see in the language of Exodus this striking, this blow against the Egyptians. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 20, God says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with my wonders. In our passage, verse 17, we see that Moses is called to strike the water that is in the Nile. So these are signs and wonders that the Lord is striking upon Egypt. And so it's probably appropriate for us to call them plagues. And if you take time to study the ten plagues, you'll start to notice that there's a little bit of a pattern. That they are actually, there is a structure and an organization to these ten plagues. They are organized in three rounds of three. So three, 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 and then the last plague, the tenth plague, is kind of all on its own. So notice, if you kind of flip very, uh, very quickly, that the first plague starts with Moses confronting Pharaoh in the morning. Then the second plague, Moses is called to go in Pharaoh's court. And then in the third plague, Moses, this plague just happens without any warning at all. And this pattern is repeated in plagues in the next trio of plagues. So conf- confrontation with Pharaoh in the morning, going into Pharaoh's court, and then a plague just happening all and all on its own. Plagues 7, 8, 9 follow the same pattern. And what we see through these rounds is a progression. Progression both of the severity of the plagues and the increasing hardness of the heart of Pharaoh. Now, of course, some of us, if we've watched enough of the History Channel, we've heard people explain that these plagues are a series of natural phenomena. This has been argued by a number of scholars over the years, and the contention is that these plagues are actually seasonal cycles in Egypt determined by the flooding of the Nile River. Uh, So for the first six plagues, it would go something like this. There was this great flood, an extraordinary flood, and so it brought in all this increased soil that goes into the the river, and it was this red soil, and so it looked like blood. It discolored it, and this extra soil killed off all the fish, which forced the frogs to jump out onto the land because there was nothing left for it, and they died from lack of food, these frogs, when they were out on the land. And from their, you know, when they died, it, these frogs became breeding grounds for mosquitoes and insects and flies. And this brings disease, of course, to land animals and eventually to humans, thus explaining the first six plagues. And yet there are several reasons why this explanation will not work. Not least of which is that there is nothing in the text that suggests that these plagues were merely natural occurrences. Uh, There's a question of plagues also seven through nine. Like, those have no chronological or conceptual connections to each other. So, how do you explain that? Of course, there's the issue of these magicians as well. 
if this is merely a naturalistic phenomenon, wouldn't Pharaoh just say, so what, Moses? What's the big whoop? Like, this thing happens every once in a while. Can't your God do any better than this? And the fact, but the fact that the magicians had to come out and use their secret arts shows that this is not just mere red soil or red algae in the water. The instantaneous nature of these plagues, the power of these plagues was meant to produce awe and wonder. That is why after the third plague, even the magicians had to admit this is the finger of God. This is the purpose of plague after plague after plague falling upon Egypt. It was to have the extent of God's power and the scope of his judgment unambiguously declared. It was meant to reinforce again and again this central, relentless message, I am the Lord. There is no other, so listen to me. Throughout these plagues, God is going to make his name known. Just look very briefly in your Bibles with me. Chapter 7, verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Look at verse 17 in our passage this morning. It says, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Flip over to chapter 8, verse 10. What does it say? It says, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord. Chapter 9, verse 14. That you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. When you're favorite team uh, loses a game sometimes we say we might say something like come on our team's actually better in like a sports game you know we lost our star player we might say something like oh you know the refs they were against our team and so we're actually better they were favoring the other team and that's one reason why a championship is usually determined by a series, whether that's the World Series or the NBA Finals. The issue of who is supreme is settled by a series. And what we have here is a 10-game series. The teams are the Lord and Pharaoh. In the first few games, Pharaoh's team kind of puts up a few points by these magicians. They're able to replicate some of these plagues, but they actually can't fix any of these plagues. So the Lord is the victor. And then in each of the remaining rounds, the Lord wins, not just by blowout, but by shutout. There is no question after 10 of these plagues, who is supreme? Who is the victor? Who is the one whose name is to be exalted and known? This has always been the case. God has always been wanting to make his name known to all the people. It's why God sent his son, the Lord Jesus. In John 1.18, it says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So these plagues are not merely meant to provide moralistic teaching. You aren't merely to ask yourself, am I more like Pharaoh or am I more like Moses? I mean, those aren't 
that's not a bad question to ask yourself. It's not bad to ask yourself, am I listening like Moses? Or is my heart being more hardened like Pharaoh's? But it's more than that. Because these plagues really happen. And sometimes we approach these plagues and we think of it like stories, like George Washington and the cherry tree or, uh, I don't know, like Santa Claus and the chimney or something like that. We think of it, we think of it as, as if it's just a movie or a musical or a cartoon or whatever. But this wasn't just a weird summer along the Nile. We are meant to sit in awe of the judge of the universe who actually did this, who made the heavens and earth do his bidding. We are meant to be dumbfounded at the God who holds the heart of this king in the palm of his hands. We are meant to be struck by the story of the play of these plagues, not so much about what God does to save but how much it is about God himself. In other words, the application of these plagues is doxological. We praise God for his fearful might and his great love which is being displayed for his beloved children. So these 10 plagues, you know, it's, it's not 10 steps to, you know, 10 ways to make more friends, 10 ways to a better Marriage, 10 ways to grow in contentment. It's 10 plagues to know God. 10 plagues to know God, praise God, and worship God. That's what these plagues are about. It is only when we sit under and let the weight of these plagues rest fully on our hearts, to know it and feel it, to grasp the light and feel the heat of God, of the God of these plagues. It is only then that we might humble ourselves before the boundless depths of God, that we might turn away from our sinful inclinations, that we might actually change from being self-centered. It's when we trust God and treasure him with all our hearts. Which brings us to the second point this morning, the supremacy of God. We've overviewed the significance of these plagues, and as we look at the very first one, we see the supremacy of God. Verse 14, the Lord tells Moses that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. This is his default position. Now, there's a lot of words as we, as we go through these plagues. There's a lot of times when it speaks of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And, and actually, in the Hebrew, it uses three different words uh, to describe this hardening. Uh, one of this is this idea of stubbornness. Another way that it talks about the hardening of God's heart is the idea of being strong or resolute. But the word we have before us is the one that means heavy. This might have the idea of being unresponsive. Uh, This might have the idea that there is a sense of pride and arrogance already in Pharaoh's heart. And God calls Moses to meet Pharaoh in the morning. It's actually kind of funny. I was reading a commentary this past week, and 
It said, Pharaoh is a morning person. And so it's not clear what the scenario is here and why Pharaoh is out in the Nile in the morning. It's not, it's not clear. Maybe he's taking a bath. Maybe he's checking the water level of the Nile. Or, it's very likely, he could be performing his morning devotionals. Maybe he made a resolution to wake up early in the morning and spend some quiet time by the Nile and worship the God of the Nile. You see, the river, the Nile, was the lifeblood of Egypt. It was the basis of their entire civilization. It was why Egypt was a superpower at this time. Uh, The Egyptians used the Nile for almost everything, and without it, their land would have been a desert. Uh, The river was a transportation system that helped them move goods from place to place. It was the irrigation system that enabled them to grow their crops. It was their water supply. It was their food supply because fish was one of the staples of the Egyptian diet. And when the river would annually flood, it would leave this rich layer of topsoil by which they would plant crops and produce an abundance of a harvest. So it's no wonder that the Nile was actually uh, worshipped as a god, believed to be the bloodstream or the, uh, one, of the, one of the veins of Osiris. It was also called, it was also referred itself as a deity and was worshipped and was called the name Hapi, H-A-P-I. Now, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that name. I don't want to call it Hapi, um, so I'll just leave it like the bunny, he's Hoppy. And uh, Hoppy was associated with fertility and with the annual flooding of the Nile. So Egyptians would sing praises to Hoppy. Uh, he was called the giver of life, the lord of sustenance. And he was also called the one who causes the whole land to live through its provisions. Egypt, in other words, deified their most precious natural resource the longest river in the world, the Nile. And so for God to call Moses to strike the water in the Nile and turn it to blood, this act would not have been lost on the people of Egypt. This isn't quite the right analogy, but there's a reason why planes crash into the Twin Towers and why it crashes into the Pentagon and why there's a desire to crash it into the White House. Why? Because these are symbols of American strength and prosperity and government and finance. It's the things we value. It's the sort of things that represent our nation. So this first plague is not a mere coincidence. This was the proverbial shot across the bow. It was a warning. It was God saying, I'm striking you at the heart of your existence. I will humiliate the Nile. I will make your God bleed out. I will make it odious and a source of death so that you may know that I am the Lord. I mean, think about what this would have meant for Egypt. It would be as if all the gasoline in, in our nation turned into curdled milk. You know, you go and you're going to go to the gas station, you're going to fill up your car, and you just pump curdled milk into your car. Uh, you'd ruin all the factories. It would be a putrefying stench. You'd destroy the in- infrastructure. Transportation would grind to a halt. 
And for those of you who are sitting there smugly with your electric cars, and perhaps this will hit more closely home to our Silicon Valley friends. It's that it's as if the internet stopped working. Imagine if you couldn't work, you couldn't post on Instagram, you couldn't check the weather, no e-commerce, no entertainment, no door dashing your food. Your God, the internet, and all it provides evaporates into a smell of, I don't know, sulfur? That's maybe what it would be like. Well, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. It says in verse 25, all the water turned to blood. Verse 19 says rivers, canals, ponds, pools of water would become blood. Now, there is some question if all of the water everywhere turned to blood. I mean, how did the magicians get hold of some water to turn it into blood? The answer, it seems, is that only the surface level of the water turned to blood. Um, so if you look at verse, the second half of verse 19, it says that there shall be blood even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. That word vessels actually does not appear there in the Hebrew. So it just says wood, stone. And so it could be supplied there because people are thinking in like jars of wood and stone. Uh, yet some understand this to refer to talking about the extent of, 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 of the water turning into blood. So maybe the wood is referring to forests and stones are referring to the rocky crags of, uh, of the desert. And even there, the water was turned to blood. Or it could mean buildings, wood buildings, stone buildings, and even the water inside the buildings turned to blood. And still others think it refers to their gods because wood and stone are often references to idols. And so the water they would use to give to the gods, to wash the idols, all these would be contaminated water turned to blood. And we see in verse 24 that the Egyptians, that they dug along the Nile for water to drink. They had to scramble to dig for new water, to this subterranean water, in order for them to have water to drink. Whatever the exact circumstances, God was making a clear statement. He was speaking in a voice that would grow to a yell if only Pharaoh had ears to hear. He's saying, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, not this Nile. Look at it. Look at your God. Look at Osiris. Look at Hapi. This God you worship and present offerings to, sing hymns to, and pray to. What is this God? You know what I did? I took these two 80-year-old men. They had a little, they had a twig in their hands, and they turned it into blood. Of course, the magicians in verse 22 do the same thing by their secret arts, by, their, by some satanic power. And notice that the Egyptian magicians, in response to the sign of Moses, only make things worse. They duplicate the feat. They're not able to solve the problem. They come up and say, oh, Moses, well, that's a good one. Well, check this out, Moses. And they, like, they turn there. They take out their water. And they're like, I'm going to turn this into blood. And it, make, it becomes blood. And I, in my mind, if I was Pharaoh watching this, I'd be like face palming myself. 
Because I'd be like, I would like that water, please, because I'm thirsty. But you see, they don't have any real power, these magicians. There's a sense of ironic judgment about the success of these magicians. They merely succeed in adding to the plagues against their people. They can only imitate, only pervert, only deceive. They cannot save. They can't save. And so the Egyptians, they dig on the Nile for water to drink. A picture of desperate times and dashed hopes. Here they are scrounging to live. Because their gods have proved impotent, empty. That is what happens with idols. Your idols will always let you down. Those things that you make gods will always let you down. You know that you made something into an idol when it feels as if you can't deal without it. When you take the good things of God and make them supreme, it is an idol. It is a thing loved or or the person loved more than God or wanted more than God, desired more than God. It could be a girlfriend or a marriage. It could be body image. It could be a food or your phone. It could be good grades, the approval of others, a successful career or sexual stimulation. It could be just great hobbies A musical group that you enjoy, an immaculate yard, your sports team. It's when, as Romans 125, we exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Just this past week in our family worship, we happened, by the Lord's providence, to be in Psalm 115. In Psalm 115, it goes... It talks about idols, and it says, Idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. And so in our family worship, I was telling my children, Idols will let you down. Marriages will not meet expectations. Money won't love you back. Vaccines will be ineffective, will grow ineffective. Grades won't listen to you. Phones won't intercede for you. And Steph Curry will never be your friend. So happy new year. But Redeemer, you who are in Christ, you who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, never forget that Jesus speaks to you in his word. The Spirit intercedes on your behalf. Jesus is gentle and lowly, a friend that will stick closer than a brother. He is the one who answers your prayers. He listens He knows all your fears and all your struggles. He is a living water. His track record is perfect. He will not let you down. So we must be vigilant and stay awake and stop trading in imperishable things for the perishable. Stop trading in the diamond for the peach forgotten 
back of your refrigerator. Stop trading in that bar of gold for a bolt rusting in the rain. Fight in this new year to know and to trust in this Jesus. Well, with a single blow, God gave Egypt a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, financial disaster, a spiritual crisis. And then we look at verse 22. The Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen. He remains obstinate. He simply turned that morning and went home. He did not even take this to heart. There's nothing here that's going to startle him, persuade him, terrorize him, soften him. Nothing here. He couldn't smell it. He didn't smell anything. No stench could penetrate his senses. It's just denial at denial. Pharaoh shrugs his shoulders. This plague, this health crisis, this economic downturn, this, all these supply chain issues that are going to happen, all of it was a call, an invitation to repent. This plague is a foreshadow of the things to come. Because God will one day do the same thing to the gods of this age, but on a worldwide level. Whatever we count on, whatever we work for, whatever we play at, whatever we dream about, all those things will be taken away. Because listen to what is yet to come in Revelation 16. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And yet in that section in Revelation, it says that the people in the world... They did not still, even in the face of all of this, did not repent and give God glory. One day God will glorify himself over all the earth the way he glorified himself in Egypt, and he will triumph. He will triumph over every false god in order to prove that he alone is creator and provider, the giver and sustainer of life. Judgment is coming. So to all of you this morning that do not know God, some of you know a lot of facts about him. But you do not know him because you have not submitted your life to him. You have not trusted him and relied upon him. I call on you this morning to flee the wrath that is yet to come. What God has done in this plague that we see in Exodus and what God is doing now in the calamities of this world as you look upon this broken world, they are meant to wake you up. They are meant as warnings to you. They are but hints and shadows, glimpses of the future of judgment of God. He is warning us. He is saying he does not wink at sin. He is a just judge. And so this morning, don't be 
I said I wouldn't preach it this way, but don't be like Pharaoh. And this morning, don't simply go home and not take to heart any of what God's word has, says, has said. John 17, 3 says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Come this morning and know God. Stop running from him. Turn from your sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. This morning, repent and give him glory. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and the warnings that you give, but also we look on your, we read and we understand your word and we see that you are a God who is, who will judge and you are a God who is merciful. And so may who you are rest heavily upon our hearts. May we dwell upon your might and your provision. May we live, may we not waste our lives and seek to know you more in this new year and to trust in you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, this morning in Exodus, we were directed to, to ponder the power and the judgment and the mercy of God through these, through this, through these plagues. And that is what we do now as we enter into a time of communion. And the Lord's Supper is a time of remembrance. It is a time to remember the power of God in salvation and sending his son, Jesus Christ. It is also a time to remember the judgment of God because he sent his son so that the judgment would not fall upon us, but would fall upon Christ. And it is a time to remember the mercy of God that we are redeemed and set free because of Christ. So listen to the words of institution concerning the Lord's Supper. It comes from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is our tradition here at Redeemer that if you have not yet participated in believer's baptism, that you refrain from taking the elements. If you are a Christian and you still need to be baptized, uh, please talk to me or one of the elders after service. We'd love to baptize you soon so that you can participate in the Lord's Supper the next time it comes around. Now, in the next few moments, we will have a time of silence and prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the, the, the wine or the cup and the bread. If you're visiting with us uh, this 
morning and you're not a Christian, while people are coming forward and taking the elements, I would just encourage you to sit there and to pray to God. Uh, Ask him to reveal himself to you and ask him to show what you need to, to know before you, in order for you to become a Christian. And church, this is a time for us to consider our lives before the Lord and to confess any unbelief and then draw near to God with gladness. So when the music begins, uh, go ahead and form two lines uh, for the bread and the cup. Let's go ahead and take those and hold those and return to our seats. And we're going to take it all together as a sign of our unity together. Uh, For those of you who are in our overflow rooms uh, outside, I want to extend an invitation for you to also come indoors with us and join the body of believers. This ordinance is meant to be taken together as a symbol of our unity in Christ. So if you are willing and able, please make your way into the sanctuary for communion. Let's go ahead and spend a few moments in prayer.